Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Spoil Me, covering The Haunting of Bly Manor, Season 1, Episode 3, The Two Faces, Part 1. In this episode, we get to see some of Rebecca's backstory and how her relationship with Pete began, and he seems like a real piece of work. Welcome to Spoil Me. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Natasha. Thank you very much to Ashley for commissioning this episode. So, um, you guys, I'm really like concerned at this point in the story because I really don't want to think that these two kids are actually just like bad kids, but there's a part of me that's like, is that it? Is that what it is? And I don't, I, I, I think the reason that I don't want to think that is because it's a little bit easy, right? To just have like the creepy kids that are bad and, you know, doing terrible things. And it's just a, a bit simplistic. That said, the fact that I'm fighting against it so hard is probably sort of influencing the way I watch the show. And I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Like, should I just sort of pull back from having a, a sort of way that I want the story to go and just let it happen? I don't know. Um, but I wanted to say that at the outset, because the whole story time thing this episode is real weird. And it's notably, again, Miles in particular, who takes shit to a dark place. I don't know what to make of this guy. Flora seems very creepy in her way, but a lot of what is going on with her feels sort of like unconscious. Miles feels purposefully so, you know, and I, I, I can't tell if it's because there's something like going on with him, if it's because he just like wants to scare people or if somebody else is sort of taking him over or if there's just an influence in his life. Um, and that influence could very well be just Peter in a, in a normal human way, you know, cause the, when I say influence in a context of a show like this, it's really easy to hear that and think that I'm just talking about like possession or, you know, a voice whispering in his ear, but it could just be a lot more straightforward than that, where it's actually like, he just grew up with Pete around and internalized a lot of what this guy 
said and how he operated. And I mean, we see a scene where Pete's talking to him about keys and finding people's keys. And um, it, it doesn't feel like an accident that we have heard Miles refer to that specifically. And then we find out now where he got that. You know, it feels like we are being told this man had a lingering impression on him and informed the way that he sees the world and chooses to interact with people in a very material way. And that's likely partially because he doesn't have a father figure in his life right now. His uncle is just like MIA. His father's dead. The only person that he has is Owen. And Owen's, you know, not around them. He doesn't even live in the house. So, I, I mean, it makes sense, especially as a kid, you know, children have, at once, they have an uncanny ability to sort of see through bullshit here and there and really be able to tell if somebody's like, not a great person. At the same time, kids tend to value the wrong things. Because when you watch a lot of cartoons, especially... That sort of, like, informs the the things that you see as, like, cool, you know, markers of success, markers of somebody being really powerful or influential, some somebody that you want to emulate. And Peter really could easily be seen as super cool by, by a young boy, because he obviously comes across as super cool to an older, full-grown woman. So there's no reason a kid wouldn't be similarly snowed by this act. Um, so yeah, I'm just, the children are like my real primary concern in this show right now, because I think the fact that there are the muddy footprints, even when Rebecca was the, the nanny here, the au pair, she, that, points to me that there has been some shit going on. And I didn't expect that. I'll be honest, I have been sort of operating under this assumption that all of the ghosts of Bly Manor either just were sort of around and we knew that they were there, but there was nothing openly malevolent until what happened with Rebecca. Looking back, I'm realizing there's no real reason to think that. It's because that's the focus of the story for us. But I don't really have anything to substantiate that assumption. And if that's true, if there has been things going on since before Rebecca got there, could there be things that went on since before the kids got there? Because their uncle being as MIA as he is... That could not be just because he is an a, a guy who wishes to be uninvolved. It could be because he had his own experiences at that place himself and doesn't want to return. Now, I don't know how much I think that. It's a it, I kind of like that theory in my way. And there's a certain way that he talks about the place when you know, when we see his interview with Danny, it's a it's a kind of combination. On the one hand, he calls it a great good place. And they, he, there's a feeling of him really like meaning it when he says that. But also when he's talking about what happened with Rebecca and her death, it feels like he's trying to downplay it. And in a way that doesn't feel sincere, like he's aware that there's more to the story, but he just doesn't want to fucking deal with that or get into it. So he's just not gonna. And, you know, I don't know if that's because he just as a grown up is aware that the situation like there's a lot of it that doesn't add up. Or if it reminds him of something that happened maybe when he was a kid. Um, because I keep thinking that Rebecca is the lady in the lake. And because she drowned herself there. And you know, once I sort of stepped back, I was like, Rebecca could very well have been lured by a ghost or something by the lady in the lake who's there already. And Rebecca is just like one of her victims. I don't know, you know, 
Um, so anyway, I'm going to start at the beginning. I'm sorry. You know how, how I do this sometimes. I get a little ahead of myself. Um, we start off right where the last episode ended, like actually a little before we get to see again the moment where the girls, um, the girls, where Danny and Mrs. Gross have their arms around Miles and he's looking out the window and he sees Jack standing there, or not Jack, uh, Peter standing there. He looks like a Jack though, doesn't he? And we cut right from there to him Peter standing in front of a shop window with the like reflection of his head over the suit. And it's just a very similar sort of image as the one that's being, you know, projected in that previous scene. And Tainted Love is playing, which is a little bit heavy handed, but also it works. Um, as we see later on, Tainted Love is an extremely appropriate song for this guy's whole deal. And he is running some errands in this scene, picking up really obviously custom expensive shirts, um, bottles of liquor that are obviously like, you know, there's a sort of impression here that he's probably already started stealing money. And it's not, you know, I'm not positive certainly seems likely based on the activity that we see later. Um, he's driving a Rolls Royce. He lives, you know, the, the whole way that he's like operating is just this wealth that's obscene. So he goes into the office and um, Henry is literally sitting there at his desk, like asleep from probably the night before. And Peter pours him a whiskey or a scotch or something as his like wake up drink. Like this is his breakfast. This guy wakes up and drinks before he has even sat all the way up. That's serious, kids. He's halfway and he's pouring it down his throat, finishes sitting up and Peter pours him another drink. It's unclear to me whether or not Peter is influencing him here to make him drink more because we don't see enough. I can't tell how much Peter's feeding into his behavior and how much of it is just this is Henry and this has always been Henry and Peter's just learned to deal with him. Because we know, as we see throughout this episode, Peter is a manipulator. That's his whole thing. So I would not be at all surprised to find out Henry didn't really operate like this before Peter showed up and he's suddenly taken a turn for the worse. And it's very weird. I don't understand what's gotten into him. You know, that kind of thing could be going on. Um, I'm sorry. I didn't see Ashley commented. I think Rebecca's probably my favorite character. I'm glad you finally got to meet her. Yeah. I'm really excited about Rebecca because they have given her a distinctive um, desire and personality that I wasn't expecting. So many women characters like this can be interchangeable with others. And it doesn't feel like there's any distinctive, you know, like I sort of thought she was going to be similar to Danny um, except that we do hear when we have Mrs. Gross and uh, what is the gardener's name? Is it Jamie watching the kids? And I think it's uh, Jamie says something about how Rebecca was like too soft with them. And so I guess we already know that there are some differences between them, but I just didn't expect to connect with her as a full person as well as I did pretty quickly. Um so he goes out into the lobby and he sees Miss Jessel, uh, who is honestly so pretty, like distractingly pretty. And he points out that she has a stain on her blouse and she pulls her braid over one side of her shoulder to cover it. And he tells her his boss is still definitely going to notice it and she doesn't seem to care. And when he does inevitably point it out, 
she basically is like, you want me to watch over a couple of kids. I'm not really going to be worried about a blouse and you don't want me to be like, that's not the kind of person you need watching children. And when she first comes in, she points out that she has read about his victory in the Baker case. Um, and that's the first clue that we have that this is not this like job that she's applying for here is not her actual goal. And I was kind of I knew who she was. But I also sort of like, once she said this here, I thought, oh, maybe this interview isn't for the au pair position. Maybe she winds up there like in another way. But no, she's just sort of planting it in his head. That this is something that she knows about, keeps track of, etc. Um, and he begins to look over her overall resume and is really impressed with her credentials. And there are a number of things about her education that stand out. Now, there's a weird moment here where he hands over the resume to Peter, says, I don't have my reading glasses. Is he saying that because he's super drunk and he like too drunk to even read? Is that what's going on? It's just a weird moment because, again, it feels like he's handing over the reins entirely. And that feels like what Peter wants him to do. Um, so the, the Peter winds up sort of running the entire fucking interview here. And uh, it's really clear that he's the guy that's sort of in charge. Henry has the name, but he doesn't seem to be fully functioning. And she sort of puts that down as they chat later to the fact that he's going through some shit. But I'm not entirely certain that's all that it is. Um, if later on, Henry says something to Peter about the fact that you called it a nanny job. And Peter's like, oh, did I? Well, I must, I, I, I just misspoke. And he's like, yeah, you don't do that. So that was definitely on purpose. What was that? And it feels like he's trying to put her in a defensive position to get a little bit more insight like by seeing what she says into what it is that she wants, which is part of, I think, his whole thing with finding people's keys. Um, now I'm going to, I'm going to say something here, guys. And I recognize that this isn't going to be super helpful, but Peter can get it. Oh my good God. This dude is fine as hell. It's really remarkable the difference between seeing somebody in action, talking and moving, versus somebody in just a photo standing still. We have seen him a few times now in reflection from a distance, and his looks did not even like cross my mind as being attractive. It wasn't that he was unattractive, but there was nothing about him that like caught my attention. I was just kind of like, oh, yeah, there's that guy. He's very like tall and thin, whatever. And when I see him in the beginning of this episode, he is so suave and suavity is not something that usually attracts me. In fact, it's a turnoff most of the time. It tends to, to me, be a sign that somebody is very insincere and rehearsed, which he is, but he manages to infuse that suavity with just enough like simmering sort of like anger and resentment that it doesn't feel totally under control, that there's like a little bit of him bubbling up through it. And in combination with that like half smile that he does, that feels very unaffected. It feels like genuinely that's how he smiles sometimes. And that accent Good God, I am sorry, Rebecca Jessel, you did not stand a chance, girl. I sympathize. Like, it's the kind of thing where it's like, I don't even care. Even if I could see from the for the moment I met him that he was bad news, I would have slept with him too. I know it. Like, I know it. Now, I wouldn't have gotten my heart interested in anything like genuine. 
I, I have always been very good at that being like, oh, I'm definitely going to sleep with you. That's happening. But I also am aware I want nothing to do with you beyond that. And that's always worked very well for me. But obviously, she feels a much more of a connection for like on her end. And so things wind up going badly. Uh, And I think it's like, I I say it like that. And it's not really fair. Because it makes it sound like it's one sided. I don't think it is. I think he actually is into her as well. But there's a, a, a control aspect that is so ugly that I hesitate to think of it as affection from his end because it's just not really what it is, you know? Um, so, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, Chris says, do you recognize the uncle? No. He reminded me of Clive Owen meets the actor who played Neville Longbottom. <laughs> I don't see that. Um, are you saying his key can open your lock? No, I am not, Ashley, because that's terrible. Take it back. <laughs> uh, he was the other twin in Hill House. Peter was? I, don't, I only watched like the first two episodes. Um, anyway, uh, no, sorry. That was about Peter. The uncle was Elliot in E.T. Oh, I wondered what he was doing these days. I saw a, uh, I saw his like tryout cause it's on YouTube. And apparently they like told him that he got the part like within two seconds of him finishing his, his, uh, audition. But I didn't even realize. No, I didn't. I never liked ET as a kid. It creeped me out. I got very scared during it a couple times. Um, so, okay. We have like the, uh, the the rest of this episode kind of bounces back and forth. We get this opening where we meet Peter, we meet Rebecca, we see the interview, this whole thing gets set up. Um, and then we start doing the backs and forths between uh, Danny and Rebecca and seeing just the contrast between the way each of them handles the kids, the the way the kids are behaving now versus then. And, and hint, it's not that different. Um, and the thing that's going on with Danny here is the police do not seem to be taking it super seriously that she saw Peter Quinn. This guy clearly is, is like, first of all, I don't see him coming back here. It doesn't make a lot of sense after he stole all the money he did. And secondly, I've looked all over the place and I haven't found the guy. So if he was here, he's certainly not now. And he, if you saw him, I don't think that he'll come back. And it's the kind of thing where when she's saying like, I want you to do something. And he's like, what would you like me to do? Kind of trying to put her in a position where he's trying to make her look like she's difficult. And it's just, it's one of those things that's so like... I feel I have such mixed feelings about it because honestly, I really expect the bare minimum from the police. Like you guys know, I have no time for cops. And that this is how most of them handle things. They just go, well, this is about all we can do. So, uh, I don't know, guess that's it. So uh, if you die, I mean, then give us a call. Like that's not surprising to me. She seems genuinely taken aback that they're not going to like post somebody on patrol on their grounds, you know, which is kind of a white lady response. Um, and Mrs. Gross sort of drops a like, well, I'm sure that the uh, man of the house will be interested to hear that you guys didn't fucking do anything. And even though that gets through to him a tiny bit, it doesn't like, it, it, there's no major change. He just says that he'll, circle around the property one more time before he leaves, basically. And um, I kind of liked the fact that due to everything happening, there are, everybody sort of is in a state of anxiety, this episode, or at least in the beginning of it, that feels a lot more real to life than I think TV shows will normally show. You know, you have somebody that's that seems to be a trespassing on your property, perhaps even in your home. Um, it would be very hard to sleep. You know, it would you might even consider staying somewhere else. 
And yet in a lot of shows, even in books, people will just decide that they're going to like go back to bed, but they're going to keep a gun under their pillow or something. And I'm like, really? That's what you're going to do? So this winds up like sort of results in a family meeting and they all are going to stay up all night together. And it's kind of a cute like cut where we have a uh, Flora saying that, yeah, we're going to stay up all night. It's going to be great. And then it smash cuts to her fucking passed out in front of the fireplace. I thought that was actually really funny. In the meantime, there's a moment um, where Danny has decided that she's going to go out and like do a round herself and investigate things. And she winds up running into Jamie and... Jamie has this shotgun and is talking about how much she hates the guy. Uh, I th- and she says, I think it's a teachable moment for me. Um, or no, teachable moment for him. Um, and there is a sort of like thing between them here. And I wasn't sure if I was imagining it. And then later on again, and it turns out that indeed there seems to be a connection. There's an attraction there. And I am super excited about the fact that it looks like there's going to be a lesbian romance. I'm like very about it. I have recently come to realize that like straight romances bore the shit out of me these days, but you give me a queer romance and I'm so much more excited about it. I'm just, you know, it's, I don't know. It's funny. Um, Ashley says, did you spot the ghosts in that scene? I sure didn't. I'm going to click on these. All right, let's see. For those who are in the chat. Uh, ooh, there's like a streak in the background of the first one. And this is a moment when Danny and uh, Mrs. Gross are standing together. That's a weird one because it doesn't look like a ghost. As far as if I'm looking in the right place, it's sort of an odd screen cap. Um, and let's see. And then the second one is... Ooh, this one's behind Mrs. Gross in the mirror. And it looks almost like a military uniform or something. I think that I assumed this was the cop standing there. But, you know, you know, I don't I don't remember exactly when this was. But uh, that's fun. She says, no, it's not. The screenshots are not great because I still can't figure out how to screenshot directly from Netflix. First ghost is over Danny's left shoulder. Um, yeah, I'm trying to, because I don't have a problem with screenshotting from Netflix, so I'm not sure, uh, what the, like, if it's maybe a regional thing, because Ashley is in Ireland. So they may prevent you overseas somehow, because we have to screen cap from Legend of Korra from Netflix all the time. And I never have a problem doing that, but it's weird. Um, I was having trouble too because this is shot so dark and I watch these episodes in the daytime and it can be hard to see. So I'm not surprised that I'm missing them. I've been trying to keep an eye out, but it's really tough. Um, when I try to screenshot, the picture comes out as just plain black. Well, I'm screenshotting from desktop when I do that. I haven't tried it from my phone. I don't know if that's the thing. Um, anyway. Okay. So, she, when in this moment where she's talking with Jamie, she, Jamie goes up to the front of this little chapel that they're in uh, and blows the candles out and says that, like, Mrs. Gross always leaves them going and that this place is going to burn down one of these days. And there's a real, like, sense to this that that is going to be a thing because later on, Peter has the lighter and he says something to Miles, like, don't burn the house down. And I don't know if it's like of any significance at all, but it just feels like that's something that's coming. Like they're laying the groundwork for that a little bit. Um, so when they go, everybody goes back to the kitchen and they're talking about like staying up all night. Uh, I should mention here that everybody has like either cups of tea or cups of cocoa or something. And everybody is drinking their tea, eating cookies but Flora specifically says to Mrs. Gross, you haven't touched your hot cocoa. Guys, 
what the fuck is the deal with this woman not eating? What is what is this? What I can't I cannot imagine for the life of me an explanation for this. I truly have no idea. What a weird thing to keep like, you know, I just it keeps coming up. I don't know what to make of it. Um. So and when she when Flora asks, like, can I have yours and starts to take the mug away? It's not like she takes it back and takes a sip. She just takes it back. And we still don't see her having any. She's offered wine later and she doesn't have any of that either. Like just repeatedly not interacting with food. It's odd. Um, Even when she has her hot cocoa and like Owen goes to like pour some whiskey into it for her, like just everything to do with consuming something. There's almost a sense of what's the word? Like, you know, that feel at one point, Jamie goes and takes her cup from her. I've forgotten that. And uh, she doesn't stop Jamie from doing that. Um, but they sit around and they talk about their theories as to why Peter Quint could still be calling. And because they think that he's behind the prank calls. And they're wondering, like, you know, maybe that's part of why he showed up at the house was that he kept calling. And maybe he doesn't know that Becca is dead at all. And he is trying to get her to pick up the phone by calling and hanging up and calling and hanging up. And when she has never answered, he started to get worried and showed up to see what was going on with her. And um, at one point, Danny says something like, it doesn't make sense. He didn't care enough about her to take her with him when he left. Why would he be worried about her not answering the phone and come back again? Which, um, fair. I don't think that this guy is still alive. The way that we have seen him in and out and about the place feels to me like he's dead and a ghost. But him actually still being alive, it is interesting. I don't hate it. I wouldn't be mad about it if it turned out that he wasn't dead. I just need to, you know, that needs to be justified somehow. Um, Ashley says she does eat the cake batter. Ooh, I didn't spot that, but you're right. You're right. I mean, I did spot, I watched that part, but I didn't think about that. You're right. It's weird, man. I don't know, like, maybe that's just supposed to be a character thing that she's like really rigid. And so she doesn't really, you know partake in that aspect. And it's also particularly interesting to me because there seems to be a specific affection between her and Owen. Like there's a flirtation or just, like I said, an affection. It's it's hard for me to tell if it's romantic or not. It's easy to read it as romantic, but I'm not sure that's it. And he's the cook. So the fact that she doesn't interact with the food often when he's the cook and he's the one that she seems to have the strongest sort of relationship with is also kind of weird to me, you know? One would think that she would particularly pay attention to the food because he was involved in making it and she seems to care so much about him. But that might just be how I operate. What do I know? Um, and, you know, when... Owen says maybe he just doesn't even know she's dead. Everybody sort of stops and seems to realize like, yeah, that actually might be true. Like this, you know, Rebecca's killing herself. It wasn't exactly a big story that he would have heard about wherever he's at. Um, so maybe he's just hoping she'll pick up and, you know, is wondering what the hell happened to her. And we see this moment a little bit later with Jamie and uh, Danny, and they're looking at a photo of the two of them together, which we see the moment when he takes that photo later. And she's saying how people mix up love and possession. And it's a really like, I really enjoy that because of the multiple layers of meaning behind, you know, possession. But, um, it's, uh, I think, an excellent point. And Danny says something about how 
they like it's odd to me that people can make that mistake because they're actually opposites. And what a great line. I really love that. It's such a it's a, such a simple summation. But yeah, if you love a person, you love them if if you truly love them. It's a, all about who they are. Not about who they are to you which is a different thing. And that feeling of love will remain true because of who they are, regardless of whether or not they respond to you the way you want them to, or respond in general the way you want them to. And as we see later, Peter is abusive. He's a bad guy. He ha- there's it escalates pretty quickly, to be honest, between and I mean that in terms of the abuse escalate escalates quickly, but also his relationship with Rebecca escalates quickly. There's clearly something between the two of them. And yet he doesn't approach it head on. He decides that he is going to woo her by being like kind of kissing up to the children. And I think that he sees that she in particular is growing close to Flora. So he tends to sort of take Flora's side here and there in an effort to make her happy. I think her being Rebecca. Um, So it's, it's, he brings in flowers and does this whole, like only a truly beautiful woman should have these and then gives them to Flora. And this is when uh, Miles sort of gets angry actually and says something about how, fla- like, why do women care about flowers anyway? Who cares? And this is when he gives his key speech. And we saw Miles giving her flowers and the really formal way that he dealt with her and how adult it felt when he spoke to her and, like, smoothed her hair behind her ear. And it's... You know, it could be either that he's like literally being possessed by the ghost of Peter, or it could be that he just watched Peter and emulated him a lot and doesn't know or understand that dealing with your au pair in the same way that an adult man dealt with a grown woman is not appropriate, you know, Um, but he has this like whole bouquet that he gives to Flora that's white. And then there's one red rose in it and sort of like nudges her into sharing. And she gives the red one to Rebecca. And we see later, like the two of them together in vases. Um, And he seems very satisfied when he sees that the red one is in its own little vase. Like that, I think for him is a, Mark in the wind column because he's trying to get in with her somehow. I can't decide if it's because of her personality, because of her beauty, a combination, or if he's simply like somebody who wants to have control over everyone and he hasn't succeeded in exerting that over other people in the house, but here's somebody that he thinks he can. I don't know how, you know, how many women does he do this with? Because he's so suave that it feels like he must all the time. But, you know, often abusers like focus all of their energy on one target. So I don't, I don't really know. Um, But gradually they have this conversation and this is really, it's one of those scenes that if it were a romance novel, if it were a moment that we could really take at face value, it would feel incredibly like telling in a romantic sort of way where he's asking Rebecca what, it, what she wants. And he's like, look, I'm not an idiot. You have an incredible education. Your references are impeccable. You clearly have some ambition and yet you're here cleaning up after a bunch of kids. And it's almost offensive that a woman that is capable of what you clearly are is here, like handling a couple of rich snot nosed brats. What is the deal? What do you 
want. And she tells him that she wants to be a barrister, not just a solicitor, a barrister. And all of her friends who are women who tried to get ahead and, you know, get basically the equivalent of like internships, they were faced with such a litany of older, more powerful men trying to reach up their skirts that they all quit because they were sick and tired of being just taken not seriously at all. It was like you had to sleep with somebody in order to play the game. And she's not interested in trying because all of them didn't succeed. And she seems to really like, she doesn't tell herself a story about how for me, it'll be different, which I frankly admire. It's so easy to pretend that with you, it would be different. And then when it's not, it's so disappointing and disillusioning. It's better to like, listen to what women are telling you, listen to what your friends have shared with you about their experience, and use that information to avoid that happening to you, if you can. So she's decided what she's going to do is sort of like, get on the inside with Henry, by caring for these kids. And then when some shit begins to open up, and these kids are maybe slightly older, and it's time for her to move on, he will recognize that she was extremely good at this job. She has qualifications, and he already knows her. And he might give her an opportunity over somebody else. And it's networking. That's basically what she's doing. And you can see the deep satisfaction when Peter hears her saying all of this, like it just clicks for him that that's what she's after. He, I think it's a combination of like, I'm really glad that I got you to tell me because that feels like a win. And also I, I was wondering whether to waste my time on you and you seem worth it because you are ambitious and you are intelligent. And that's what I'm interested in. And when I say that's what he's interested in, I do not mean I want a smart woman. There was a quote that I saw the other day, and I wish I could remember. I think it was from Trevor Noah's Born a Slave. And he was talking about how independent, strong women are treated by men as like ornamental birds. They are drawn to independent, strong women who are ambitious and successful. But their immediate urge is to clip their wings and put them in a cage. And so those are the women that they like, appear to go after. But when it comes down to how they live, that is not who they want in their wives. They want a woman who has those qualities, but is willing to give up everything for them and to have a family. And that that is sort of seen as their victory is convincing a woman to stop going after things for herself and give up her ambitions. And that's like the the sort of goal. And it made a lot of sense to me. All of a sudden, a bunch of things began to click into place. Because it's so true. There's a whole, you know, like, women, there's a certain type of woman that really does draw men. And then you get past a certain point in a relationship. And suddenly the things that you that like, the things about you that seem to draw them are suddenly what threatens them. And it's very confusing. And yeah, that just that feels like the way that Peter operates. He likes the concept of a smart, ambitious woman. But that's because he sees her as a challenge, not because he likes that as a person. Um, so, eventually, you know, they have that whole talk and it ends with him saying, I see you, Rebecca, I see you, which is what all of us want to be seen for somebody to really get it. And that's a very appealing line. You know, I could see that working on a lot of women after having a conversation like this. And um, he commiserates a little bit later by saying, like, because of where he's from, he's not part of the fucking club. And I'm certain that that's probably partially true, because there's a whole thing in Britain with like the way that 
certain areas are looked down upon that is baffling to me because you're all white. Who cares? But evidently people care. Um, at the same time, I have no doubt that he's playing that up. So as to, you know, elicit some sympathy and try and act like, well, I sort of get it, you know, and eventually he orchestrates a little thing where he winds up having to be overnight at the house for a few nights in a row and the two of them end up sleeping together. And we get our first moment of just red flag. She gets up in the morning. She has to go because she's behind. He's in the bed and he wants her to stay. They're joking around about how she really has to go. And she's sort of teasing him. And he grabs her arm really hard and says, get back in the bed please. It's like he realizes he took it too hard too fast. And so he adds this sort of like, please and softens his expression really quickly to mitigate the damage he may have just done. And it seems to work. She has a look of alarm for a second, but him looking like almost apologetic a second later is enough for her to sort of shrug it off. And then there's the scene with the batter. This is wild. So he's baking a cake. Owen's baking a cake and he's making all of these batter puns. And honestly, it's the worst. I love him. He's great. Oh my God. So annoying. At one point, Jamie says something about how all of the women in town are mad for him and he doesn't even know it, which just makes it worse. And she says this while asking like Danny, if she's jealous that, Mrs. Gross's head is on his shoulder because she fell asleep that way. She wakes up and is sort of apologetic. And Owen's just like, it's fine. Go ahead. Go back to sleep. And she does. And I'm realizing now Jamie like asked that because she was trying to sess out whether or not the vibe she was getting off of Danny was correct or not. And I didn't realize it at the time. I was like, why do you think Danny's interested in Owen? I didn't get that impression. I mean, Owen clearly thinks that she's pretty, but he hasn't all like flirted with her at all. And so where's that coming from? And now I'm like, oh, she was just trying to like, see what Danny would say. Um, so, you know, the fact that all the women in town are mad for him, I 100% believe a thousand percent. But a guy like Peter, I don't think would see somebody like Owen as a threat, really. So I can't decide entirely, but I think that the whole outburst later is orchestrated. What happens is that Owen's going around and he has his little like, you know, bowl of batter and a spoon, and he's asking everybody to taste it and tell him whether or not they think he should make any changes. And he doesn't like when he offers it to her, she takes a taste and it's not a big deal. It's like, you know, just a jokey moment. And I, I don't know, it's sort of, it could be seen as a flirtatious moment, but it's nothing. And yet Peter completely freaks out and sees it as in like incredibly disrespectful, super flirtatious. I can't tell if he really feels that way or if it's, bit of an exaggeration because he wants to like, that's how abusive people handle their targets is that they sort of knock them off their balance and make them panic and try to sort of scramble to please again. And they that's how they establish the you have to keep me happy sort of situation in a, in a relationship and make the other person understand that's how it's going to be. And you like they, that's how they establish their boundary with what they'll accept from the other person in their behavior. So even if he wasn't like that upset by this, because I think he was a little in the moment when he's watching, he seems to feel a way about it. But I don't think it's like to the degree that he pretends. I think he's just trying to like really establish to her, this won't be fucking tolerated. And I'm not kidding. And then leaves when he's supposed to stay another night or two in order to put the scare in her, you know? Um, 
Ariel says, I saw it more as he's angry for her being easy or slutty than Owen being a threat. Yeah, I think that's what he's like implying. But I don't like I'm not I don't know that I buy that he thinks that. I think that that he has decided to like, just sort of up the stakes here in order to establish what this relationship is going to be. It's hard to know. It just feels so over the top. And there are people who are like that, but he's also so specifically manipulative that I could see this being a bit of a show, you know? I don't know. Um, but regardless, the, I, I'm so, I've sort of jumped over the intermittent stuff with the two of them because they sleep together. Um, and then there's like a whole thing where he has taken like a bottle of expensive wine from the cellar and set up this like private little spot in the wing that's closed off to everybody and he has a fur coat that i apparently like belonged to these kids mom and he's trying to tell becca that henry gave them the okay and that you know it's fine to give her this coat which becca doesn't seem to really buy that that's true but she still puts it on and goes with it. And I guess in the moment, she probably just didn't see the harm. Um, and they begin to like make out and Mrs. Gross interrupts very disapprovingly and is like, girl, the kids are fucking alone outside and you're in here about to fuck this guy. Really? You're also wearing their mom's old coat and he's stealing wine from the cellar. What are you doing? And he gets like, reamed by Mrs. Gross, which is honestly a very satisfying moment. She really gets up in his face and is just like, don't you fucking dare do any of this shit ever again, or I will fuck your whole life up. And uh, she says that she will grab him by his ear and throw him in the lake. And uh, he seems cowed, but also I can't help but think that's going to bite her in the ass somehow. I don't know. Um, Ashley says on their dead parents' bed, like I was fully expecting a glaring ghost mom. Uh, Ms. T says, I agree. He sees it as an opportunity. That's, that's a nice, succinct way to put it. Yeah. He sees it as an opportunity. Thank you. Um, and yeah, that scene, it's just, again, him sort of pushing her boundaries. She wants to like do a good job. And that is because that ties in with her overall ambition. And he knows that. And he's trying to see how much of her overall ambition she is willing to jeopardize to be with him. That's what this feels like to me. It's a very simple one-to-one ratio. You want this. You also want me. How much do you want me? Let's find out. Just for fun. Just because he's bored. Or, you know, like, that's just how he gets his kicks. Um, so... You know, this this whole thing with him, it's just awful to watch because you know how badly this is going to go. Like the, the whole the whole thing with the two of them is doomed. And so the fact that they are that they do have this intense chemistry together feels so much sadder and there's like an inevitability to it, and I just feel like it's just hard to watch. And this is how life can be sometimes, you know, life can be like you're on the outside and you're seeing a thing unfold and you fucking know how this is going to go. And yet there's not a thing you can do to stop it, you know. So let's jump ahead here. I don't have that much time left to story time. And story time is preceded by a sort of weird thing with Flora where she is. Oh, yeah. Ashley's bringing this up. Um, she is gone in the morning when Danny goes to wake the two of them up. Miles is already awake and he's just sort of waiting and he's being real weird again with like, can we have a picnic? It's a lovely day. When we find Flora, we should go and make a basket. And she's like, when we find Flora and they go out and they see Flora just standing on the edge of the lake. And we see that it looks like apparently Rebecca is standing like on the edge of the lake. But Danny is just staring at her. And when 
for some reason, Danny, like, tries to pick her up and get her to come back in. She just starts screaming, no, no, no. And I don't know why. Like, what is it? What does she want to stay for? What is that going to accomplish? Um, And she, like, is very under the weather for a lot of the rest of the day. To the point where they call a doctor and they're concerned about her. But then... She shows up like in costume with her face painted and seems totally fine. And nobody like seems phased by it except for Danny. Everybody's like, yeah, this is how they are. They go through these like weird moods and then they're fine. And like, who knows? This is also the point where because they've called the doctor, uh, Danny begins to get really fed up with the fact that Henry is just saying, keep me posted about everything. But he has no intention of actually coming to the house. And Mrs. Gross is just basically like, yeah, that sounds right. That's how that's how he acts. Um, so when they do this like storytelling thing, um, Ooh, Ashley says, we kind of skipped over Flora going missing, but this is a ghost that was hanging around when Danny went downstairs. Oh God, that one in the background. Uh, no, me no likey. It's so easy to miss, man. I hate it. Um, this story time is so weird. Uh, so first we have like, she's, Flora's the one that's sort of dressed up like a cat. I say dressed up. She, her face is painted like a cat, but she's got like a, you know, little dress on and ears. Um, and she, the, the the story for her is just kind of like how she followed the scent of apples trying to find her mother. Um, and she says like her name is Tails and that she unspun this like, roll of uh, yarn and then wrapped herself up in the yarn. And what is it that she says? I wrapped myself tight. It was warm. It was right. In fact, don't react like my strange little friend did. Because once it was done, it was perfectly splendid. And she says, purr. And by the way, Rebecca's the person that she seemed to get perfectly splendid from. So then we have Miles doing Poppet the puppet, which is interesting considering that I've been wondering if he's possessed. And he's talking about this guy who I can't remember his name that he uses, like Caleb or something like that. And he talks about how this guy made a bunch of puppets. And the puppets like eventually began to forget about the person who made them. And Claude, that's his name. Claude went away on a journey one day and left the puppets at home. And as time went on, they began to realize, they forgot that they had strings. Um, they forgot that they were puppets. And when he came back and said that he made them, they laughed at him. And so he pulled their strings and it hurt. It's a really weird bit. And there's something to this that feels almost like there's like a ghost in charge in the house. And this is a story about how the ghosts are doing their own thing now, even though somebody is supposed to like be running the show or I, I don't know if there's a feel to it of an abuser like Peter who wants to be in control of everybody and doesn't appreciate it when people don't realize that he's the one who has made this all happen kind of thing. But when he says he pulled all their strings and it hurt, the minute that he says that, and he gets very emotional here in a way that feels serious and they all sense it. It's not just Danny who is reacting strongly. Everybody is like uncomfortable. Um, when he says, and it hurt, the phone rings and interrupts. And it turns out that Owen's mother has died. And it's weird because it feels like Miles saying he pulled their strings and it hurt is him hinting that this is about to happen. Like, that he is somehow responsible. Claude is somehow responsible 
for Owen's mother dying, that this is one of the things. And I don't, I don't know what that means. You know, I just, there's something about it that the timing is too perfect. And there's an expression on Miles's face when he's like interrupted and he goes and sort of sits by himself for a second. He looks almost like upset himself. He blinks really rapidly and grabs the arm of the chair that's nearest him as if he wasn't in control of himself in that moment and has come back now and doesn't really know what happened. It's not great. It just, it doesn't, that doesn't feel like Miles. Something's going on. I feel like Miles is not a bad kid. And whenever he's acting like this, this is something else. And it makes me wonder, like, you know, he specifically asked about, did the demons need to get the permission to like, you know, possess that guy. I can't help but think that maybe he has been possessed without permission. And he's wondering like how that's allowed. If the Bible says that you have to be like, if you have to grant permission to let them in and, you know, in his experience, that's not how it works. And he's like, what? But I don't know. There's just something he, especially when he starts to get into the monologue about how like some of them were happy and some of them were sad and laughed and whatever, he stops for a moment and sort of pauses in a way that feels like that thing is now here and it wasn't a moment ago. I don't know. So I feel like that's almost everything this episode until the very end where we have um, G- the moment between Jamie and Danny. And I really love it. And I can't wait to see what happens. But I'm also worried because it feels like anything to do with this place doomed. And then we have something new happen. Where when Jamie gets in the car and drives away, Danny's standing there by herself for a moment. And then she turns around. And the ghost that she normally only sees behind her is standing there with its weird fucking eyes, um, glasses. And this is the first time we've ever seen it standing, like, you know, basically freestyle. And her reaction to it is very strong. Like, whenever she sees it as a reflection, it tends to just be kind of like this fucking thing. But she's used to it. But her reaction here is much stronger. And it's weird. His glasses almost look like moons, like there's clouds going over the moon. I don't know. It's a weird effect. And all of a sudden, he gets like yanked backward. And she screams, and that's the end of the episode. Um, Oh, and I should mention that we saw a scene a little bit earlier where she's like alone in bed, and it looks like she's having sort of a panic attack reaction. I can't remember if she sees him then and that's what causes it. It's a really brief moment. Um, and I just like, she, this actress is so good at doing the sort of panic attack thing, this feeling of just completely losing it, you know? Um, oh my God, that's right. She turns around and she sees a hand reaching for her that's shaking and like covered in cuts. That's what it is. I forgot about this. And I'm, I'm realizing now the glasses of the guy that is look like it almost looked like headlights. And this cut up hand looks like when glass breaks. So I'm wondering if there was like a car accident thing. And that's what the trauma is about that. Like somebody got hurt in a car accident and she was there and couldn't save them or something like that. Um, but yeah. Mm. Anyway. So yeah, guys, I really do like this show, but it is super spooky. I am, I am a giant wimp. Sorry. It's just who I am. But thank you very much to Ashley for commissioning this. Oh, and Ashley's telling me all this in the chat. Sorry, Ashley. I'm like on the page with the show streaming to check on things. So sometimes I miss the comments, but I appreciate you. Um, all right, guys. Well, let me see. When's the next one? On February 2nd, Tuesday. 
Yay! I get to watch it again real quick. I'm very excited. Thank you guys so much. And I hope you've been enjoying the coverage. And until next time, toodaloo, motherfuckers. Spoiled Network Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.